And today is the day that we are specifically and directly going to break the spirit of poverty. Amen. I've asked you before if you had your druthers. Is druthers a word? Is it? Is that's a word for all right for those of you that are well versed in English? I don't know what language I speak in sometimes, but 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 if you'd rather have your druthers, would you not rather walk in a sense of blessing and prosperity as to having to walk in poverty? I would think so. And God's word addresses that. And this was the day that we have been preaching the last couple Sundays of October. Clay shared, obviously, last week, and here we are, the first of November, and we're wrapping it up, and we'll go on to other important items after today. But this is the time that I wanted to spend in order to specifically break a spirit off of our lives. And so we've been talking about that, and if you want to catch up, as was mentioned on the announcements overhead, you can hit our website, go to the media page, Hit iTunes and it will take you directly to a free download that you can get all the messages for the last couple months. Any message you would want, you can download it from there and you can listen to it so you can catch up easily. That's absolutely free of cost. Or if you'd like a CD, some people like CDs to, to be able to put them into their player in the car and there is a cost with regards to that. But you can catch up quickly in order that you can get your life in order in order that you can be positioned for God to do some incredible, amazing, miraculous things in your life. That's the important part that you have to remember. You've got to position yourself. God has given you freedom and has given you an ability to choose whether or not you want to be positioned for Him to do great things in your life. You can't expect God to do great things and walk contrary to what He said was His will and His ways. And so we started... The first lesson, and again, I thought I was only only going to spend maybe a week on it, and then it just evolved. It really wasn't a plan. It just happened. But we started talking in the beginning about the tithe and the place of the tithe and how that works in our life and how God works through that. And, And we talked about that when we rob God, we're really not robbing him of something that he needs because he doesn't need any of our money. Amen? I mean, God doesn't need your money. I'm just here to tell you, if you think God needs your money, then you aren't serving the God I serve. He has no need. For God to be God, he has no need. For every need, he meets in himself. He is self-existent. He he has everything he ever needs. I mean, he is unfazed, unmoved. You can be greedy, stingy, covetous. You You can sock it all away for yourself. You don't have to let anything go out of your hand, and it won't affect God one bit. So the key to this is not that we rob God from a sense of what he somehow needs, but we rob God of the opportunity to demonstrate his heart Because he can't bless, he can't help, he can't multiply, he can't release, he can't work in your life. You rob God of his ability to be big in your life. That's what we're robbing God from. Not that you're keeping back a couple bucks he may need. You're robbing him from the ability to open up the heavens and rebuke the devourer pour you out a blessing you'll not be able to contain. You're robbing him from the opportunity to break the curse off your life. You are are tying his hands up. So you keep your two bucks and realize you're locking up all of heaven. So we started to talk about that. That was week one. And that's the starting place. That's where God says, I want you to start. I want you to test me. He says, prove me in this. Test me in this. See if I won't 
Be faithful. Now, I, let, let me just say this. When you've walked under a curse, and many do this. I mean, this happens all the time. Folks don't get revelation in this area, so they walk under a curse for 20 years. And then they practice tithing one week, and they wonder why things aren't working. Now, you've, you've got to allow spiritual precept to begin to move and work in your life. So you, you do have to give it some time and understand that, that, that God's orchestrating and moving. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him moving behind the scenes, and I think it'll really help you and give you a sense of encouragement this morning. And then the second week, we talked about moving the hand of God. And we sort of set the stage as to how some people in the Bible, and there are some people that you probably even know, they have this uncanny ability to get God's attention. You'll read of, of numerous people here in the Scriptures that had this ability and an obedience and a faith to move out and move into some things and they could get God's attention. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been moments in my life I've needed God's attention. I've needed Him to pay attention. I've needed Him to know my address, my phone number. It'd help. I'd give Him my email address. I'd give Him anything He'd want. I wanted His attention. I mean, there have been moments, are there not, that, that all of us have felt like, does God not know where I live? Does He not know what's going on in my life? Does He not care? Does He not see? And, and, and again, we, we talked about all of that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it this morning, but there have been moments we need God's attention in our circumstances. So we talked about how to, how to move His hand, and all of that we've just laid as foundation, line upon line, order upon order, precept upon precept, to get us to today. And if you'll allow God to open up revelation and unveil revelation to you, what he'll begin to speak to you will, I believe, will carry you all through your life. This isn't just a one-day thing. We're only doing this sort of as a living illustration as a congregation. But if you'll let God get into this aspect of your life, you will see him do some incredible things. And we're going to talk about building what I've called building a memorial. Building a memorial. If you have your Bibles... Turn to the book of Acts, and we're going to read those first eight verses in the book of Acts and uh, see exactly what God did in the life of an interesting person here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1, here we go. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Now you have to understand, it doesn't tell you this, and, and I don't even have this on my notes, but this will mean a lot to you later. Caesarea, it was Caesarea Philippi. Are you with me? Remember that. Remember Philippi. Remember that. Because that's going to be very important a little bit later. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. I like some versions. They have it, the Italian battalion. I thought that was kind of a cool little rhyme there. The Italian regiment, a devout man, it says, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. You'll want to remember that as well. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he, meaning the angel, said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, that's underlined in my Bible. Your alms and your prayers have come up for a memorial before God. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. 
And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And again, we'll be teaching on what I've entitled this morning, Building a Memorial. Now I've read to you here in Acts chapter 10, the story of a man by the name of Cornelius. We don't know a lot about Cornelius. A lot of the information we have about him is somewhat limited. But it is interesting that the little bit of information we have is somewhat explicit and it helps us, I think, get a real understanding of what what caused God to take specific note of the circumstance that he was in. What we know about Cornelius is this. He was a military man, the Bible tells us. He had the rank of centurion in the Roman army. Now, as best as I have been able to ascertain it, a a centurion probably gave leadership to about a hundred men. But the most notable thing was not so much that he was a military man, he was Italian or a Roman soldier, and he was responsible for men who were under his authority. But really the most notable thing in this passage, and what will eventually uh, begin to be the beginning of one of the most incredible happenings in the life of the early church, was that Cornelius was a Gentile. A Gentile. Now, what a Gentile means is this. He's not a Jew. All right, he wasn't Jewish. Very important. But despite not being Jewish, he was an uncommon man for his day. For the word says several things about him. It says that he feared God, and it says that he was devout, and uh, his whole household had apparently embraced that as well. Now, what does that mean, that he feared God and that he was devout? Well, in those days, since he was not a Jew, um, most Gentiles, as you would be aware of, especially those that were in Rome, probably would have served many gods. In fact, the Romans were known for their tolerance. It's interesting how our American society is quickly degenerating into the ancient Roman society on several fronts, one of which was in Rome, this is interesting, Rome had many gods. In fact, in many homes you would go in, and as you'd walk in, they'd set their gods up sort of with little statues. And you could literally have scores, tens, uh, hundreds of different gods. And it was interesting that the Romans would uh, be tolerant of all those gods. All those gods, they would be very tolerant of. And, And you say, well, what was the big deal then with Christianity? You see, the big deal with Christianity was this, that when when Christians began to declare Jesus Christ, he wasn't just one of numbers of gods that you put up on the shelf, but the uniqueness about Christianity and why the Roman Caesars and citizens of that uh, city would get so irritated with Christians was that they would declare that Jesus was the only God. Now, you've got to understand America today. They don't care. You can worship anything you want. They are so tolerant of all the different gods we have in our society. But the reason they're not tolerant with us Christians is because we uniquely declare not that Jesus is one of many, but he's the one. The one. And that's what irritated Rome. Because what basically Paul and others were saying was this, clear your shelves off. There's only one and he doesn't want to be an idol anyway. That was the unique feature of declaring the gospel. So do you understand what's going on in America today? That's why why you can go to the public school and you can teach about all kinds of religions, but don't you talk about Christianity. Because we declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Amen. And you're right. You say, well, that doesn't seem very tolerant. Well, you're right. It's amazing. People will, people will, will throw things out there and then they'll just sort of say kind of as a side note, well, you know, I think Jesus was a tolerant man. Oh yeah, he was tolerant. All right. When he looked at people and he said, you ain't getting to the father unless you go through me. I'm just quoting the man now. He was the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He was so tolerant, he ran everyone out of the temple. Sometimes people just need to read the Bible again. So here was a Gentile, Cornelius, he was not a Jew. And what it meant was being devout and fearing God was that despite not being a Jew, Cornelius sought to attach himself to the one true God. Is that not amazing, living in that society? And at that time, of course, even those that were Christian had Jewish backgrounds. But here was a Gentile who wanted to attach himself to the one true God. He wanted a relationship with the one true Lord. And so there would be these groups of God-fearers, Gentiles, who would practice the Jewish faith and do many of the things that Jewish people did by way of worship and by way of expressing their faith the only exception was, and, and it, 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 you're just going to giggle, but just giggle anyway, was they didn't get circumcised. <laughs> Apparently they said, well, I don't know about that. I don't know. That's quite a commitment there. But you'll understand, though, why in Acts 15 they had this big, you know, church fuss over circumcision. And, and do the Gentiles have to be circumcised before they become Christians? And, and as we know, when that all unraveled and turned out, that finally... It was James who was the senior apostle there at the Church of Jerusalem who finally came out and said, you know, we've we prayed and sought God and, and the Gentiles can come in just as they are. And so here was a, a Gentile believer who was attaching himself to the one true God. And, and so all of this implies at least that he would be a practicer of righteousness. He would be a practicer of those things that the Jews would have practiced in those days. As best he understood it, he would have entered in and and, and, and begun to worship the one true God, even with his limited understanding and revelation. He was a God-fearer. He was devout, which would have included, I might add, several things. Probably his tithing, probably his giving. It's obvious here that he was doing some things that I'm going to get to that, that obviously caught God's attention. And so there were numerous things that he entered into despite the fact that he would not come into the fullness of what God wanted to do in his personal heart and life. And, and there was this feature of Cornelius and his spiritual walk that was of particular interest, being a Gentile, he was not a Jew, he was a God-fear, he wasn't what we would exactly call a born-again believer yet, but he was on his, his way, he was obviously moving in that direction, he obviously had a heart towards God. But there was something he had already gotten a hold of that caused the Lord himself to pay attention to what was going on in Cornelius' life. And the interesting thing, and, and I can't read to you the whole chapter, I'd encourage you maybe to do that later. But if you'll study the life of Cornelius, you'll begin to see that it is the greatest example I can find in the scripture of the Lord beginning to work behind the scenes in someone's life in order to prepare them to receive something that would be of incredible value. Because the whole time... Cornelius is practicing his righteousness and he's 
doing everything he knows to do despite being a Gentile. I'm quite sure because the Bible says that not only were, was giving taking place, but he was praying as well. God was beginning to move in the background. He was orchestrating some things around Cornelius, getting things positioned and getting things ready in order that he could begin to move and work and bless in Cornelius's life. What was that? Well, what happens is, is that God gives not only Cornelius a vision, he not only sends him an angel, he not only opens up his personal eyes to understanding, but what I started to get excited about was that God was working on Peter. God was over here somewhere else beginning to open up eyes and open up hearts and sending visions and beginning to prepare the way. And all of this was happening at the same time until finally it all converges at one moment and God's heart is opened up toward Cornelius and his household. And he's working behind the scenes. And, and, and I just want to encourage you this morning that, that there are some things that you can begin to do and put in motion that will give you the confidence that God is working for you behind the scenes. Have you ever wondered that? I've always wondered that in my life. Lord, I'm praying. I'm, I'm doing what I know to do. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it the best I know how to do. It, it would help me to know that you were working somehow behind the scenes. And I'm here to tell you, you got a story right here that begins to demonstrate that's exactly what God is doing. God's working behind the scenes. Heaven's beginning to move for Cornelius. Things have been put into motion in the spiritual realm that are fixing to be unveiled and manifested to Cornelius. I mean, can you begin to see right here? Here's a guy, not a Jew. He's not in the fold yet. Just being devout, doing everything he knows to do that's good and right. But God is getting ready to move for Cornelius. I want to ask you this morning, get this in your heart. How many of you would like heaven to begin to move for you? I mean, think about that. There have been moments in my life that if I could somehow, some way, get God's attention on something, I would want heaven to be in motion for what was going on in my circumstance. There are times all of us face that. We need an angel. We, we need some revelation. We need a vision. We need some understanding. We need God to open up a door. We need Him to work behind the scenes. I mean, sometimes we need God to begin to, to begin to be activated and move on our behalf. Well, the question is that you have to bring to the equation is what got all this started? How in the world did this whole situation that I'll talk about even more, how did it all begin to happen? And the answer, I believe, is in verse 4 because it's confirmed in verse 30 and 31 as well. It says here that when the angel shows up, it says, He answered to Cornelius, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. When he shows up, Cornelius has a sense of Fear, at least a sense of anxiety. And the angel says, I'm here because you prayed and you gave. And something's been put in motion. Drop to verse 30 in that same chapter. Because Peter comes into the scene after God works behind the scenes. And he begins to interact with Cornelius. He begins to tell Cornelius how it's unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with a Gentile man. So, so here they are working through this odd situation because Peter's getting his religious spirit, you know, tripped. Because he's saying, I'm not even supposed to be here with a Gentile. Good Jews don't do this, and God's trying 
to tell him, I'm not asking you to be a good Jew, I'm, I'm asking you now to be a good Christian. So Peter's beginning to interact and he's working through out loud what he's to do here with Cornelius. And uh, Cornelius begins to share with him in verse 30, he talks about that he was fasting and, and, he, and he testifies to this angel that came into his room and he repeats again what the angel said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered. Your alms are remembered. You ought to underline that word, remembered in the sight of God. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Cornelius mixed. He took a moment where he mixed his praying and his giving together. And together, they formed something greater than either of the two were by themselves. Did you hear what I just said? They formed something greater together than either of the two were by themselves. Now, I, I, I don't do very well in math. But I can remember years ago studying math and there was an old adage in math that went something like this. The sum is greater than any of its parts. The sum is greater than any of its parts. So, so listen to me for just a second. So you have prayer right here. Imagine, imagine this hand being prayer. How many of you know prayer by itself is a powerful thing? I mean, you're communicating with God. That's a powerful, powerful thing. So we know that to be true. Praying is powerful. But then imagine on this hand, giving. And you know enough of the scriptures. Many of you do. You know that, that there can be power when we release resource out of our hands. So we, we also know that when we give and we have a benevolent heart and giving is a part of our life, that that can be a powerful thing as well. But here's what this is saying to us here. When these two are properly understood and they are mixed together, there's something explosive that can begin to happen. Now this is the part I want to underscore. Here in verse 31, I asked you to underline it. It said, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. I got my, my interlinear out, which is my Greek to English Bible, and I started looking at words. Because I, I, I know that sometimes words are interesting. And so I started looking up the word remembered. And, and I don't know that that was such an interesting word. But then I noticed when a, a Luke wrote the book of Acts. And as he was under inspiration, I, I noticed how he used a, a specific verb tense. And, and this will mean nothing to you. But allow me just to go through this just for a moment. He used what's called a present progressive verb. Now that doesn't mean anything to you. And it didn't mean much to me. Until I began to understand what that verb meant. Remembered. Because it wasn't like it just got up there and it flashed in front of God's face and then it was gone. But that, that verb, remembered, means that his prayer was a perpetual, ongoing reminder before the throne of God. In other words, what the angel was saying to Cornelius was this. He was saying that, that when you mix this together, when you had the capacity to let these two things come together, it was, it was so explosive that it actually lingers now before the face of God. It lingers before the throne of God. It became what the angel would say in verse 4, a memorial. A memorial. Now let me just define memorial real quick. A memorial is when your intercession and your giving are linked together in such a way that you're able to present your request or you're able to present your need or you're able to present whatever it is you're seeking God for in a way before Him that lingers. Before his face. 
It's ongoing. It's perpetual. A memorial. A memorial has the ability to get the the attention of God. Do you know this morning, how many of you have, have, all of us, a lot of us have had children. I won't say all of us, but a lot of us have had children. You know when, when when a child wants something, you know how it'll do? Like it'll, it'll, it'll shake your pants leg, you know, mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy. <laughs> you, you know how they get hyper and you know, Hey, Hey, don't forget. You promise this the, and, and they'll just forever until finally there's a moment you just say, I won't forget. I won't forget. And they're just not going to let you forget, especially real little kids. They, they know us real well as human beings and they know we have a tendency to forget and not that God would have this tendency. It's just a, an illustration, but but apparently a memorial has the ability to get in the face of God and say, don't forget. Don't, 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 don't somehow put it off. This is important. This is serious. This is something I need you to uh, have your attention put on. And, and so a memorial gets the attention of the Lord. Now, before we can get into the memorial, and I'm going to do that, the first thing I want to teach you just for a few moments is that we've got to close the door to the curse of poverty and the spirit of fear. Because if we don't get this closed in our life, we can practice these sorts of things, but it will never do us any good. It's kind of like the person who goes to encounter or they go through deliverance and they go through all of these things and God works in their life and gives them these great, wonderful moments, but they never close the door to the things that are opened up in their life. And what it does is it keeps them going back to the same old spirit, the same old problems, the same old things. And then what they do is they say this, well, that encounter stuff just doesn't work. It didn't work for me. I went that one weekend and it just didn't work for me. Well, can I just share this with you? That, that we, don't, we don't declare it to be just the end all for everything. But a lot of things don't work in your life because you aren't shutting the door off to the things that were causing the problem. So, so we can talk about how God wants to work in our resources and wants to work in our finance. And we can do all of the things that we know to do. And I've watched people do this for years. They've, they've tithed faithfully. They've given faithfully. They do all these things faithfully. But yet they still seem to face poverty and, and lack of resource. And, and they get frustrated and don't understand. Well, let me, can I just share with you? You've got to break that fear and break that spirit of poverty. Because if that door is open, it'll just keep flooding right back into you. So we've got, we've got to address that. We've got to do that. Through the years, I believe, this is just, this is thus saith Kevin, that the church at large has been the victim of a poverty spirit. I believe that, that good Christian people have been victims of a poverty spirit. And it's been passed down to us, I also believe, through a generational curse. Now I want to remind you once again that poverty, Poverty is not just lacking certain necessities. A lot of people think poverty means I don't have everything I need or or I don't have everything I want. But poverty really at its root is not so much lacking certain things, but it is the fear of lacking certain things. That's what the spirit of poverty is. The spirit of poverty isn't that you don't have stuff. The spirit of poverty is a fear of not having anything. So I want to remind you, that, that, that he would call the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he'd call the, the Macedonians rich, although in the natural they didn't have much. But yet you could go to the rich young ruler and he had a poverty spirit because despite having untold millions of dollars more than he could ever spend, he couldn't let anything go. He feared letting things go. 
that somehow he wouldn't get it back or that somehow his needs wouldn't be met. So it is, it is absolutely possible for millionaires, billionaires to have a poverty spirit on them because of their fear of lack. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Everyone repeat after me and say that. God has not given us a spirit of fear. One more time. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Can I just share this with you? Whenever fear is creeping in your life, it's not God. It's not God. God doesn't fear you. Can I just say that even in the church, you know what we've done? We have justified our fears instead of breaking fear off us. And you know how we do that? We, we, now, we, don't call, we don't call fear by its name. We call it prudence. Amen. Well, I'm just being prudent. Really? I, I have no problem with being prudent. I mean, really, there, there is a place to weigh and to consider. I'm not, I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying prudence is not a virtue. But can I just say, I just want you to get honest with your motives. Are you being prudent or are you just fearful? Are you full of fear? I've had people use, use the word wisdom in order to hide their fear. Well, I'm just being wise. No, you're being fearful. Fearful. Just because you rename a demon doesn't make it any less a demon. Have you ever thought about that? We just rename our demons. I don't, I don't, I don't have a spirit of lust. I, I, I have a spirit of openness and tolerance. No, that's not what you got. Well, that works in this area as well. It's interesting. You talk about money. Think about this for just a minute. Whenever we talk about money, and I'm not going to talk, this is the last week, and then we're going to go on to the whole council of God. So don't worry. We're, we're not spending forever here. But it's interesting that whenever you talk about it, especially in the house of God, it's interesting. All of a sudden, we clutch our purses. We grab our wallets. Everybody gets edgy. I have a family member who tells me that any time, any time if the pastor were to even remotely talk about an offering or money or anything, he said, you can feel the atmosphere shift in the congregation. Ah, I knew he was going to get to this. I've been here a decade and I knew he was finally going to get to this. Have you ever, you know what I'm convinced? That's a manifestation. I believe it. Because there's a fear in us. We fear that someone's going to hoodoo us or take something from us or we won't have enough or what about this, what about that. I I'm just telling you that is a spirit that is on us that we got to get off us. Get it off us. Now, the question is, well, where did that come from? How did we get that? I'm going to share something with you that's very important because, you know, the Protestant church, and, and we would be considered Protestants, although I know we have probably numbers of people that have Catholic backgrounds and there are many things that we can esteem out of Catholicism. I mean, I mean, Catholics have their problems and there may be some errors, but the fact of the matter is there's some folks in there that love God and want to serve God, and I recognize that. But we also have to remember that back when Protestantism was formed, there were some great abuses that were going on. There were some great things that were absolutely, completely over the top and out of order. And so we all know or should know the story of Martin Luther. It's in the early 1500s. He is one of these uh, Augustinian monks that's trying to work through how you get connection with God and how you establish relationship with God. And he began to see all the different 
abuses that went on during that particular period of time. And one of the greatest abuses that really turned his stomach was the issue of indulgence. And indulgence simply was that you got to pay, you paid something in order to make sure that you were going to get to go to heaven, or you paid something in order that you could spring one of your relatives out of purgatory. And it was used in a very corrupt fashion, certainly not a biblical fashion, but it was used in that particular day in order to scam people. Now you say, well, pastor, that doesn't seem very smart to be talking about an offering, and then you're telling us that there, there's scams going on. Well, I'm going I'm to deal with that, but listen to me real quick. We, we need to make sure that we close the door to, to what got started in all Protestantism. Because, because just because there's a scam out there doesn't mean that somehow we knee-jerk and react to what the legitimate place of our finances and resource have in the Word of God. I'm going to just I'm going to show you a clip. Guys, if you're ready to start that clip, go ahead and do that. And, and I want you just to take a quick look at what's going to happen here. It's, it's a man by the name of John Tetzel who's raising money for the Catholic Church. Watch. In heaven there is a treasure chest filled with merit. Merit from Christ Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the saints who, through their holy lives, have merit to spare for us poor sinners in need. Tonight that treasury is open to you. Do you not hear their voices? The screaming voices. Your deceased parents, grandparents, Uncles, aunts, screaming, Beloved child, beloved child, because for a few coins, you can rescue them from their punishments and pain. Listen, open your ears. Father calling to son, mother to daughter, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. God-fearing man, do you have a coin for Christ? Yes. certain your crippled child can run to Jesus. These learned monks are standing by to write down your name or the name of a loved one dead or alive on this, your passport to the celestial joys of paradise.
Well, that happened all over Germany in the early 1500s. And uh, as Protestants, we have a heritage that obviously reacts to that. Luther did. That's when he posted his 95 Theses. He basically zeroed in on this fact of indulgence and how somehow or another that uh, uh, the Pope could release these people from purgatory. And his question was, if, why would you not do that just on the basis of love? If you could do it, why would you just do it? Because you love people and just release them. And, and we all know the story of the Protestant Reformation. But here was the thing that, that just sort of struck me in all of this. That sometimes, because it's the nature of a human being, that whenever we see an abuse or whenever we see something that's wrong or that's an error, in, instead of making sure that we get back to where we need to be and make sure that we're being totally scriptural, what happens is, is that we knee-jerk and we react. And, and, and I honestly believe that something happened in Protestantism because as a whole in Protestantism, we just have a spirit that makes it real tough when it comes time to mentioning resource or finance or money. And I'm just here to tell you that what took place in those days was absolutely in error and is wrong. But let me give you a simple precept that will help you. In fact, I believe I put it on the screen. Here's the precept, and, and just you can remember it or write it down. For every counterfeit, there is a reality and a truth. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just think this through with me for just a minute. For every counterfeit, there is a reality or a truth. You cannot counterfeit a fake dollar bill. Right? You can't counterfeit a fake because the fake's a fake. And if you're counterfeiting it, then all you've done is you've already counterfeited a fake. So, so in order to counterfeit something, you have to counterfeit the real thing. So if you're going to counterfeit money, you have to counterfeit a real dollar bill. Let me tell you how Satan does this. Satan messes us up all the time with this. He cannot create anything, and so what he does is he counterfeits God's reality. I've, I've listened to people all through the years, you, just on different areas. They'll talk about, oh, you know, there's no, there's no apostles on the earth. You know, the Bible talks about false apostles. Well, there's no doubt there are fa false apostles. But once you, if you have a false apostle, that means you've got to have a real one somewhere. I've heard people say about false prophets, this and that. Hey, if, if you got a false prophet, there, needs, there has to be a real one because you can't counterfeit what's not real. And I'll tell you this, the Bible says that there'll be false teachers and false believers. And you can't have false teachers and believers unless you have real teachers and real believers. But what we do is, and people do this all the time, they knee-jerk and they react, and because they see a counterfeit, they discount the reality. And so what Satan does is, is he comes and he starts counterfeiting things. And he gets us confused. And he gets us twisted. Because he wants to take a legitimate truth, a legitimate biblical happening, and he wants to twist it. And he knows us so well. He knows that if he twists something well enough, he'll cause us to doubt, to fear, to wonder, and ultimately to reject that which God says is for us. Yes, he will. I've heard people talk about about the kingdom manifestation in the world, and, and people get all nervous because they'll say, well, you know, those Jehovah Witnesses, they talk about kingdom. And? And? Just because somebody counterfeits something, we're going to just knee-jerk and not even deal with it? So we reject whatever slightly resembles the corruption without really checking into what the Bible says. And that's exactly, I believe, why we never hear any teaching on the memorial. 
Because it initially looks like somehow you're buying God off. It looks like a scam. And what the enemy does is, is that he seizes upon our fears and our skepticisms. And so literally for hundreds of years, we've been rendered impotent in the church and in our lives. Because we've refused to break that curse of poverty and that spirit of fear off us. Some of you grew up in the same kind of circles I grew up in. And let me tell you, we venerated poverty. We thought poverty was exactly what God called us to. That we were just to be sort of in shambles and ratty tagged, you know, clothing. And, and we sort of venerated it. Because we pull out a few verses here and there about sacrifice and some other things. And then we justified our poverty mentality. That's not God. We've got to break out of that. If we're going to win cities, we've got to understand resource has to get to us somehow in order to accomplish some things God has for us. And it's not about just absorbing it all and buying bunches of toys and, you know, and all of our getaways and bigger barns and all the things. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God's for the harvest. But He's got to get stuff to His people in order for us to get on with His commission. He doesn't want us to be impoverished or in fear. Isn't Satan slick? He keeps us poor. He keeps us confused. He keeps us indebted. He keeps us reactive and fearful and ignorant of the curse and then wants us to feel good about it. And if he can effectively stop the purpose of God in the church, then he has sh effectively shut down the heart of God. Because the church is the hope of this world. It's because that's what Jesus has linked himself to, to work through in order to reach people. And that's why we've not impacted cities and nations. It's why here in America we struggle so much. It's because, it's because we have plenty. We have more than we could ever imagine. And yet, why doesn't God work in America like he works in third world countries? You know what's amazing? Because in a third world country, when people come to the offering time and they throw in their few pesos or their few rubles or their few yen, I mean, when they throw it in, it's just like that woman I mentioned the other day when I was teaching this. They, 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 they're, th they're throwing in next, next day's eating. They're throwing, they, I, mean, they're, I mean, God sees what they're, what they're doing, and, and that is why revival moves in those countries. But here in America, we hedge our bets. We work off the, the sheets. We, we make sure everything's in order. We got it all figured out. And I'm here to tell you, it just straps the hands of God to move in our life like he could. I believe that. I believe, I believe that, I, you, whether you believe it for your life or not, I'm just telling you things that God's been working on me about. I'm, I'm just here to tell you, I am not going to function in poverty. I believe that God's going to give some of us an ability to generate income that can literally let loose of millions. And it's not just for us to just get a bunch of junk and stuff that's going to rust and corrupt and fade away anyway. It's for us to begin to understand that we can reach, we can reach cities and nations if we really got serious about it. So what's involved in all of this? Well, let me share this with you. What's involved in a memorial offering? Most of the time when we hear memorial, we tend to think of dead things. You know, something's died, something's dead. So we, we build a memorial, perhaps we build a statue, or perhaps it's, it's a tombstone. Perhaps we give a financial gift on behalf of somebody who died. But a true biblical memorial is not about dead things, but rather it's about a life thing. It lives. A memorial lives before the throne of God. It speaks before the Lord perpetually. 
A memorial has the capacity to capture the attention of God. Now, how is this done? I'm just going to give you some simple things. It's not a list of ten things. I think I just have three quick things I'm going to mention to you. And if you'll embrace that and walk in that as God enables you, I believe you're going to begin to see God do some incredible things in your life. Number one, how is this done? Number one, the offering has to mean something. It has to mean something. You see, to capture God's attention, I think your offering has to be of value to you. It has to mean something. I mean, if it doesn't move you or it doesn't mean anything, then why would God be moved? I mean, whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. And so if it doesn't cause you to be moved, if you're not sowing a, a, a move, then maybe we don't have the right to expect that from God. It's interesting, I was reading back again in Malachi. In Malachi's day, the Lord had an offense with his people. And that was that they brought that which was of no value. I want to read to you out of Malachi chapter 1. And I want to read to you what the Lord says through the prophet to the people. This is what he says. He says, a son honors his father, verse 6, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, this is the Lord speaking, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Isn't that interesting? God says, you've despised my name. He's talking to the religious crowd. He's really talking to leadership. And, he's, and, he, and, and, and they go, well, how have we done that? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Now drop to verse 12. He says, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is what was going on. The people knew that they had to bring sacrifices. That was how you made atonement in those days. And so they knew they would bring animals in order to atone for their sins. But what they began to do was they began to look at their flock and instead of bringing God their best or something that was of value or something that means something to them, they'd find the sick cow or the sick sheep or the lame animal. And they'd say, well, we're going to kill him anyway. And so we'll go ahead and pick him up. And they would take him and offer him up to the Lord. And the Lord says this. He says, you're not getting it. You think that just because you bring an animal to be offered that somehow I'm okay with that. But that offering doesn't mean anything to you. It's of no value to you. You give me what's left over, not what's best. And I'm telling you, that's what we need to begin to let God deal with us. Do we just bring him the leftovers? I've listened to people for years. I'm sorry, I'm going to teach what I live. Is that okay? This is what I live. I've listened to people for years say this, well, I I can't give, I can't tithe, because after I pay all my bills, there's nothing left over, or I'll only give what's left over. I figure if the government seizes my money before it even gets to my checking account, I am not going to allow leftovers to go to God. I, I I write off my gifts, and I write off my tithes, and I write off my offerings. If I'm going down, I'm going down on God's side on this thing. I just figure that all the time. That's just how I live. 
I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't, because I don't want God's leftovers. We want God to do big things in our life and we just, we, we're giving him leftovers. Years ago, I, you've heard me tell this story. I taught at a mission in Oakland, California. Most of the guys at the mission were on crack cocaine. And so we would deal with them and work with them. And I, I spent a couple of years teaching these guys and, you know, and, and, and you develop a relationship when you're down there so much. And when it was time for us to move and come to South Carolina, I'll never forget. They had a party for me. They made a little cake and, and, and they got me little presents and they didn't have much. Most of what they had, they've squandered away most of their, their earnings and, and anything they had because of their drug addictions. But it was interesting because one of the guys gave me a cap. And it was kind of, a nice, kind of a nice cap. And I knew for him to have given me that cap, I mean, this was significant for him because I just knew that it just wasn't there. So it was a real nice cap. But it wasn't a day or two later that I ran into him and he looked at me and his head was down. He said, Rev, he said, he said you're going to have to forgive me. I said, why that? He said, you know that cap you're wearing? I said, yeah. He goes, I stole it. I said, you stole it? He said, yes, sir, I stole it. I said, you're telling me this is a hot cap? He goes, yes, sir. I said, yeah. And I put it in and saying, I said, go take that thing back. Take it back. You understand? It, it didn't cost him anything. There wasn't any value to him. I'm glad God eventually dealt with him. I mean, praise God, God dealt with him. But the truth of the matter is, it cost them nothing. In 2 Samuel 24 and 24, David was going to build an altar for the Lord. And as he was building this altar for the Lord, he was building it as a part of his atonement in order to make, make himself right before God with regards to his sin with Bathsheba. And so he was going to build an altar before the Lord. And as he's preparing to build an altar, he's kind of scoping out here and there all the materials that he's going to need and the land that he would need in order to build this altar. And there was a guy that came up to him, I think it was actually a priest perhaps, that came up to him and offered to the king, which would not have been all that unusual in that day, but offered to the king to really pay for that which David was wanting to build. And so they were, he was going to give him the land, he was going to give him all the material, and he was going to give all this to him in order that David could do what he knew he needed to do. But in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he looks at this offer. And now, I understand how most of us would be in our day. If someone were to do that for us, we would say, well, hallelujah, God's on the throne. See that? I didn't have to do anything. He just blessed me, blessed me, blessed me. I didn't even have to. You see, he knows my need before I even do anything. I mean, I know how we are. That's how all of us would be. We'd be given praise reports and testimonies and, whoa, isn't God good? But here was the problem. David, who understood the ways of God, said these words. He said, will I offer offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing? So he looked at a blessing and he said, you can, you can save that because I'm not going to obey God based on your benevolence. I'm going to obey God based on what he's saying and speaking in me. I'm not going to offer to God anything that, that, that costs me nothing. And I've already taught you that it's not the size of a gift. It, it really isn't the size of a gift. A billionaire can give away thousands and thousands of dollars, but, but it's of no value if there's billions set aside. While a middle class person can look at their savings account or their checkbook, and if they were to write $100 or $1,000 or some $10, I mean, that would be everything that's in the account. I'm here to tell you that $10 would be more than the thousands and thousands and thousands that might get released from a billionaire. It's not the zeros you give, it's the zeros that remain. 
God knows. God knows what you're offering me. Now, now I'm ending here. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, I want to I, I just read this to you. I hadn't read this in years, and it just was quickened to my mind. Mark 14, 3 through 9, I want to read a story to you that's just really, really good. Listen to this, and listen to what Jesus says. Mark 14, verse 3, it said, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. A woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. In other words, she had a, a perfume, some, a, a, a container of perfume. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, listen now, listen to what they say. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Now get this in your spirit. These disciples are sitting around Jesus, the master. They watch this expensive perfume just go over his head. And can I just tell you, the only thing that was meant for was to make him smell good. He also said later that she would anoint him for burial later. It was a prophetic act as well. But they were indignant. They thought it was wasted. For they say it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, can I just share with you, 300 denarii in those days was approximately one year's wage. Think about that. What is the average wage, would you say, of, a, of just a middle-class worker? I mean, I, I don't know, to live in Charleston, I mean, you've got to generate some cash to live in this city. I mean, but you think about it. Even if we took it down to its lowest levels of 20, 25K, let's just say you take it way down low. Because I'm just here to tell you that if you made 20K a year, 25K a year, you, it would be rough to just live middle-class in Charleston, South Carolina. I mean, that, that'd be true, right? I mean, that, that's not... I mean. For a lot of us, we'd say, man, that, I'm not sure I could just make it unless I had other extra help come as well. So imagine that, that, that she breaks that and, and puts that over him. And they criticize her sharply. Why? Because it could have been given to the poor. So instantly they look and say, hey, you're wasting this stuff. We could have used it to meet a need. Are you hearing me? So they're irritated. Now, now, before we go any further with this, I want you to think right now in, in the church of Jesus Christ how, how it is we give. Because if we give, we'll give if it meets a need. But when was the last time you gave because you loved God? Boy, are, are, am I just talking to you worldview change? Because if I were to stand up here and I were to give you a litany or list, and I've done that before, of all the things that would be neat to do, and maybe they would be all needs, and maybe we'd hand out, you could meet this need and you can meet that need. I am always amazed at how you can move and motivate a group if you throw out need to them. And if they get a burden for a need, by golly, they'll just move and they will meet that need. And so you got to see the disciples, they're looking at this whole scenario here. And what they're saying is, whoa, wait a minute now. She's got a year's wage here. She's just wasting it seemingly on Jesus when it could have been used to meet a need. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you. Now, this is the great verse. Because underline this. Because nowhere else in scripture does Jesus say this about any other person. Think about this for just a minute. Of all the things, he, he, he affirms and esteems John the Baptist. One time he said, I believe Matthew 11, he said, 
Among prophets, there's none greater besides John the Baptist, so he really affirms John the Baptist. But you read through the Gospels, and you won't find many affirmations of individuals. I mean, significant affirmations. But this woman, who, according to everyone else around Jesus, was wasting one year's wage in just an expression of love to God, he says this concerning her. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Can you imagine? He says this to the disciples. He says, as you go preach and as you go share the gospel, tell about this woman. He looks at him after they just got done criticizing her about what she's done and they're indignant and all the things that could have been done with the money. Isn't that just like Jesus? He looks at him and he says, all right, you're going to be negative and critical. I'll tell you what, every time you preach, I want you to tell this story. There. You, you tell the story. There was something in that that was important because in their mind, she wasn't meeting a need. But in Jesus' mind, what he said was, here's a person that just loves me. It's not meeting a need, but Jesus says she's doing a good thing. And wherever you go, tell the world. It's a memorial. When was the last time, I just want to ask you, you just gave to the Lord just because you could. Just because you could. No need was in it. It's just you could. Not because there was something that had to be done and you could feel good because you released your, your money in order to meet a need. And, and whenever we meet a need, we feel like somehow we've made a difference with our money. And I understand all that. And, and I give the needs and I do all those kind of things. But I'm trying to get some revelation in us all. When was the last time just because you love God, you just said, I'm just, I love you. There you go. Now you just get ready because the world hears this and they don't get that. They don't get loving God. Understand? They understand meeting needs. That's why, listen to me, I'm not against this. Nobody's against it. But the reason you'll get good press when you feed the poor is because in the world's mind, you've met a need. That's okay. But the minute you begin to love God with those same resources, the, the world will criticize you. You'll begin, I'll tell you what, if Solomon had to build his temple that God told him to build in the day that he lived in, I don't know that he could get it done. Because the Philistine press would probably be all over him talking about how he was wasting money because that temple did nothing more than demonstrate his love and commitment to God. Amen. We've got to get a worldview shift. You understand, we're not here. Are we here to meet needs? Sure. Are we here to reach the lost? Absolutely. Are all these things appropriate, proper ways to facilitate resource? Absolutely. But I'm just telling you, in our minds and in our hearts, we've got to understand that this, you know what, There's, there will always be lost people. Amen? I, I mean, if, so far as I read my Bible, there will be people in the end and at the very end that will not have received Jesus Christ. So we'll always have lost people. And, 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 and we'll meet needs of the poor, but we'll always have poor people. And we'll always have need after need after need after need after need. And if it's all about meeting a need, it'll never end. But if it's all about loving God, we can, we can begin to move that direction. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. So your offering has to mean something to God. Number two, it has to be released with your intercession. That should be self-evident, I would think. You need to present the offering with your declaration and confession of faith. 
And then number three, and this is where I'm going to end, right here. You must release the memorial. And it's critical that you must have an expectation that you will receive when you release it. When you release the memorial, you've got to have a confidence. You've got to have an expectation that God will release his promises to you. Just like Cornelius received. And I came across this, and I'm, I'm closing real quickly. Turn to Philippians. I, I want you to see this and read this, because some of you won't believe me unless you read it with your very own eyes. Because you've read Philippians 50 times, and you've never heard it quite this way. So open up. Philippians chapter 4. Listen to this. This is cool. Philippians 4.15. Listen. Paul writes, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia... Listen to what he says. No church, everyone say no church. No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Now, why would Paul say that? Because here's the thing, I read that and I thought to myself, why would he say that? Because the truth of the matter is, there were other churches that did give to his ministry and that did give to his vision. Well, you need to understand that the reason he said that was found in the words giving and receiving. You see, the Philippian church not only understood giving, but they understood receiving. They gave, but not just to help facilitate the ministry, not just to meet a need, but they gave expecting to receive something from the Lord. It says here that no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving. So they had an agreement with the Lord that made Paul say this. He said, if if you'll allow me, just give me just a little liberty here. While it's true that other churches were sowing to meet needs and other churches were sowing into the ministry and other churches were giving, that is absolutely true and I could take you through Acts and Corinthians and prove that to you. But this is what he says. He says, as for you Philippians, you are the only ones that give this way. You not only give, but you give with an anticipation that there'll be a receiving. And that distinguishes you from other churches. So then he begins to say in verse 17, listen, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. When I read that, I thought that's cool because Paul says, I'm not looking to get your money. I'm not looking to get your money. I'm not looking to grab something that you want to lay hold of and keep it in your hands. He says, that's really not what I'm trying to do. He says, rather, I want you to get fruit. I want you to get return from what you're sowing. And I just want to say this to you, that your giving or not giving doesn't hurt me, it doesn't hurt the church, and it doesn't hurt God. But ultimately, you'll only hurt yourself. Because ultimately, you're the one that ultimately will have to decide what faith you're going to exert, what position you want to be in, and how it is you want to release your finances. And then finally, in verse 19, he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, I'm just here to tell you that verse is quoted a lot of times. And I've done it myself, and I'm I'm being rebuked for the way I've quoted it before. Because we've thrown this verse around, we've looked at people, and we've looked at them and said, well, you know, God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But we have quoted that verse out of context. We quote that to people all the time, but the truth is, God will only supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus when you begin to practice releasing with expectation. When you begin sowing, not just because there's a need and somebody needs you to be the great big need meter, but you begin to release finance in order that God can begin to release towards you. 
And I'm just here to tell you, we quote that to people, but they're hoarding and they're clutchy and they're covetous and they don't want to obey God and they don't want to walk in faith. And I'm not trying to be mean, but unless we got the revelation of giving and receiving and function in that, I'm not sure all your needs will be met. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You're saying, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like God would do that. Well, you know what? It's amazing me how you think God's obligated to move for you when you do nothing to respond to him in faith. Or you do nothing to give him something in love. You do nothing except take and take and take. We've got to break that and say, God, we just trust you. You will see us through. Uh, amen. I'm not saving. Let, let me tell you, you've you got to do what God's called you to do. But Trace and I have said this for years. I'm not, I'm not even retiring. Because you know what? I believe God's going to give me health and he's going to give me strength and he's going to give me longevity. I'm going to be into my 70s preaching the gospel. I'm going to go out preaching when I'm 90, 100 years old. God's going to meet my needs. God, you say, well, I don't know that you're too smart. Well, you know what? Maybe you'll sit back. And you'll have your way of doing it and watch my way of doing it. But I'd, like I said, I'd, I'd rather crash with God than just rely on the ways of this world and rely on my 401ks. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm just saying there's something in me that's got to declare, God, I'm with you all the way. All the way. I want legacy. Legacy to be a Philippian type church. Because you see, he's talking to that church and it's a church as a people. We always have needs. Is that not true? I mean, I'm here to tell you that I, I, I've got, I could, I'm going to do a makeover and I've got all kinds of things and, and there's things I want to do for the youth and the kids and there's just things we can do by way of ministry and we've got all kinds of needs and maybe even a few desires too. But if we want God to meet all of our needs, then we will have to learn how to give and receive in a way that will distinguish us from other people and other churches even that we sow with the expectation we make that confession every Sunday that God will indeed open up the windows of heaven he will pour us out a blessing come on now let's just break that mentality of poverty that says oh, it couldn't be me yes it could be you he wants it to be you he's ready to do something incredible in your life the Philippians were on the cutting edge of the harvest at that time and I'll close with this. If it weren't for Cornelius and his memorial offering, listen to me, if it weren't for Cornelius and his memorial offering, you and I would not be here today. He sowed, and when he sowed and God moved, it opened up the door for every Gentile. He was the first fruit of the Gentile church. Do you understand that? If Cornelius hadn't done this, you wouldn't be here today. You say, well, God would have found someone else. Well, you're probably right. He would have found probably somebody else. But just take that thought. This was the guy that opened up the floodgates in order that the Gentiles, you and me, might receive the good news of the kingdom of God. He was the first fruit of that. And can I hitchhike on that thought for just a moment? There will be people who will come to this city years from now, maybe generations from now if Jesus tarries who will be brought into the kingdom because of people like you and like me who lay our lives down for the gospel, who get a revelation of giving and receiving, who maybe even because of what we do today by building a memorial, God might open up a floodgate and bring in the generations and the nations. All of Cornelius' household was saved. Some of you, 
You need to give a memorial if for no other reason than you need to see God move in your family tree, in your household, just like Cornelius. Some of you need to give a memorial because you need to access God's riches in Christ Jesus. Some of you need to give a memorial because you got a heart for the city and you've had it for years and, and, and you're just ready, you're at the place and God's leading you to come to that place of faith to step into it and believe like Cornelius that a first fruit of the harvest will come. For me, I've already, you can see, I've already, some people have turned in their memorials already and I've already laid mine out right there. Tracy and I have sowed, and let me tell you something, we, we have sowed what we can do significantly. An offering of value because we're breaking that lack mentality, that poverty mentality. We are breaking all of those kind of things. We're believing God for the harvest and households. And I'm just telling you, God can do something unique at this moment. And if you don't want to enter into it, we're okay. God bless you. I love you. God loves you. But I just wanted you to have the opportunity to link up with me and for me to find a couple people I could agree with. That we would see God's hand move and that we would see his attention focused on a group of people that really have a heart for the hearts. My brother-in-law, I won't won't tell you the whole story, but my brother-in-law, there's sometimes I love him to death. But, but I'll tell you this, Trace, and we were talking about this the other day, for all, of, for all of Rodney's interesting ways. About a month ago, about a month ago, he drained, he literally did drain his savings account. And he sowed a gift unto the Lord. It just unto the Lord. And I remember when he, when he mentioned that to me, I said, wow, I don't know that I'd have drained the whole thing. But that's, that's pretty amazing, Rodney. And I was still, you got to understand where I was. I was kind of in that mode going... Maybe you want to hedge your bets, sir. Can I just tell you, this weekend, he was sowing it for some things within his family, his extended family, and some things with regards to his business. And I'm just here to tell you, the man got over a hundredfold. I, I, I mean, for all of his weird ways, he got God's attention. I, you know what? And, and, and you know what? I can sit there and scratch my head and wonder about him, and he can just chuckle all the way to the bank. Because truth of the matter is, he did it. Whether I like it, didn't like it, didn't think that's the way it ought to happen, he just, God just didn't check in with me. Can you believe that? He didn't check in with you, did he? I didn't, I didn't think he did, not with me. But it happened, I, I can't deny it happened. I wish I could give you a 100% guarantee for you. But all I know is, is that I'll never receive anything from God if I don't step into it. I, I never know. I'll always be one of those people that stand on the sidelines and wonder. I don't want to stand on a sideline and wonder. Like I said, if I go down, I'm at least going down, going all out for him. But there's something in me that says, you know what, you aren't going, you aren't going down. You aren't going to do it. He'll meet every need you got. Amen? I want you to get your tithe, your offerings, your memorials. I want you to get them ready right now. And we're going to receive that. Guys, why don't you come on down? I've got some men that are going to receive it. And then as soon as they're done waiting on you, they're going to bring it forward. And then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray over them. And ask God to break the spirit of fear and lack, meet the needs. And I just, I, just because you love God, don't ask me what, what you're going to do to meet a need. We'll meet needs. We're going to do the work of the ministry with it. It's coming into the storehouse. That's what we're going to do with it. We're going to steward it. As best we know how. And we have done our best to steward every dime appropriately. But this is, this is about, you aren't giving it to me. You aren't giving it to the church. You are giving it to God. Can you just say amen to that? 
you are releasing this as unto the Lord. I'm loving you, Lord. That's all I'm doing. I'm loving God. You say, well, I'm frightened. Well, I'm not asking you to do something my brother-in-law did. I mean, that's where he was. He had the faith to do that. If if you're not there, I'm not asking you to do that. Because you've got to have the faith. And if your faith is only to this point, then then do where your faith is. I can't define that for you. Because you're going to have to walk it out. And and if you're not where my brother-in-law is, if you're not where I'm going to be, there's no condemnation. I'm just asking you, you, can you stretch your faith just a little? Just a little and get started? Let's just see what God can do in your life. Amen. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Holy Spirit, I thank you for this moment. Lord, we've not spent through the years an inordinate amount of time on this subject. I believe, Lord, that I've been real clean-handed in regards to this. But Lord, I know how you talked to me and you spoke to me. I just know that you were working in this area and you were challenging me and you're challenging folks to step out in this one area. And Lord, we just want to trust you. We just declare today, we trust you. We trust you. Our source is not our boss, our job, our bank accounts. We thank you, Lord, for all the things that we have around us. And there's an appropriate place of saving things. And I, Lord, I, I know all that. But Lord, this is a moment that I know you want to talk to us in this one area about just trusting you, loving you. And positioning ourselves for an incredible future. Lord, I pray that the same spirit that was on Cornelius, who wasn't even born again yet, but he had had enough of a revelation of God that he was able to enter in to something that, Lord, caused your hand to move. Lord, give us that spirit. Work through these moments. Do something incredible, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for talking to each one individually. Lord, I know you're going to you're going to be wide and varied in how you visit with people today. And Lord, I pray that, that as we just wrap it up this morning, that Lord, we not lose the revelation of giving and receiving. Let us be like the Philippians, Lord, who are on the cutting edge of the harvest. Thank you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, go ahead and, and wait on the folk. Guys, if you have, uh, you can just run some music if you want as the folks are, are sewing. And, and Will, as soon as you, uh, the men have waited on the people, I want you to bring those receptacles down and, uh, and, and bring a couple guys with you in order to help move this table right here. And we're going to break that spirit. Yes, we are. We're going to break that in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be the name of our God. Blessed be your name, O God. Come on, believe as you, as, you, as, you, as you have dropped that in that receptacle or as you are dropping that in the receptacle. Imagine at that moment you're releasing it. You just release that into God's hands. You're, you're, you're preparing to pray. We're going to pray the memorial prayer. And, and we're going to believe for an explosive moment. We're giving and praying, which are both powerful things in and of themselves, but we're going to believe at that moment as they come together, explosive 
miraculous, supernatural things are going to begin happening in people's lives. I want that to happen in your life. I want you to have that praise report that says, that says, Pastor, 30, 60, 100, incredible. You need to anticipate that. Expect the blessing. Begin to just be on your toes. Have your eyes open. Don't walk out of here saying, I don't know, I don't know. You've got to be, you've got to be ready. God, how are you going to do this? I want to be attentive and ready to receive what it is you're about ready to do. This right dead center. Thank you, guys. I want you to just bring those offering receptacles. We're building a memorial, something that will linger before the heart of God. Thank you, Lord. This is what I want you to do. I, I want you to make sure they're all turned over, so I don't want anybody to be able to see what's on the front. But I do, yeah, just I want you to lay it out there. Don't let anybody, I don't want anybody seeing what's on the front. And if it's, if it's folded, that's fine. That's fine if it's folded. But I don't want anybody to be able to see anything. Up. We're building a memorial. We're building a memorial. Everybody stand. Would you stand with me? Right now, some of you right now, you, you, you've written on these envelopes things that you're believing God for, things that you're needing His attention in, things that you're wanting this explosive happening to take place. I want you to come and I want you to gather just on both sides just as if you were coming to the altar to believe God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay hands right here, but if you're believing God for some things, I need you to just come right now and, and, and just and join me. If you want to stay, you, you don't have to come, but for some of you, man, this is significant. This is, this is a significant thing you have done because you're needing some significant happenings in your life. And I understand that. And I can tell you, I personally, I, I can personally affirm you and I say God bless you. But the most important thing in here is, is that it, me, it meant something to you. Therefore, it's going to mean something to God. You believe that? It's going to mean something. It's a value. You're not buying God off. Otherwise, a, a, a widow who gave $10 and, and, and a wealthy man who gave thousands. I mean, if we're buying God off, then obviously that wealthy guy has a head up, doesn't he? But truth of the matter is, if it's a value, there's something in that that comes and rises before the throne of God that's going to be explosive right now. I want you to believe God with me. Clay, why don't you just join me and just lay your hands right here. Let's just begin to pray right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're opening our eyes. You're unveiling and revealing. And Lord, you know my heart as a shepherd. I, I, I never want to do something that would lead 
those people who trust me into something that would be detrimental or something that would be, be hurtful or put them in a spot that would be difficult. But Lord, at the same time as a shepherd, there's something in me that has to call them to a place of faith and trust in you. And Lord, I've tried to do that as best I could. I've tried, I've tried to communicate it rightly and well and tried to give the whole counsel of God and answer those questions. But Lord, there comes a moment when we just got to trust you, Lord.